So yeah, feel free to introduce yourself. Okay, uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, my name is Xu uh, Zhun, uh, and I've been teaching economics at um, Howard University for the last couple of years. And then now I'm teaching at John Jay College in City University of New York. Um, I'm also the uh, uh, um, um, interim uh, graduate program director here at John Jay uh, for the econ program. And you know, we still welcome applications for the um, MA uh, program this, this fall. Um, you know, anyone interested, feel free to contact me. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in China. Um, I came to the United States uh, for graduate school. And I, I, I've been, uh, I taught in, in, in China for a few years uh, before I started teaching here in the United States. Well, thanks so much um, for speaking with me and taking the time. And I, I would love to focus on, so you have a recent article in the Monthly Review titled The Ideology of Late Imperialism, The Return of the Geopolitics and the Second International. So I think people are sort of, who are listening are familiar with the Second International. They probably know what the politics were um, in contrast to the Third International. But I wonder if you can explain before beginning a little bit more about the Second International's view of geopolitics and of imperialism itself. And you know what exactly you mean by the return of this ideology um, back onto the scene? Right, yeah. Um, um, I think that, um, um, you know, for, for all Marxists uh, from the 19th century to now, I mean, the, 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 I guess the key question is um, how do we get this done? You know, how do we actually start a revolution? How do we win it? Um, which is very different from, um, you know, writing uh, one after one article about, uh, you know, what a, what a beautiful society it could be after the revolution, but how do we actually do it? Um, um, and ultimately, I mean, Marx and Engels, they, um, they figured out that it's the proletariat class that uh, emerged from the very existence of capitalism from the industrial revolution uh, that has, you know, has the potential of building a new society. A, a real classless society. And um, the question is, um, you know, how, or, or which part of the proletariat were, um, which, which, where could it happen first? Um, I think it, it was interesting that uh, although Marx and Engels, um, they spent, a, I would say, a good portion of their life in the most advanced industrialized economy at the time, the Britain in London, um, they and they had, you know, they had fair amount of interaction with the British working class and the, the British unions, um, but they didn't. Um, I think I don't think they had, at any point then in their life that they had such hope that the British working class would actually be the one that would uh, uh, destroy the, you know, capitalism in Britain, uh, not to say the entire world. And uh, when they were writing um, the Communist Manifesto, their hope was uh, in, in the German working class. Uh, by the time the Ger Germany was not you know, united, was not really uh, um, formed yet. 
they had a hope in the, the German working class and bring in a revolution that, you know, um, um, finish different objectives at the same time. Um, but Germany at the time was the relatively backward part of the Europe. Um, and I think towards the later part of their life, um, um, after Germany started to become a major, um, you know, a rising power on the continent, um, um, I think they, they were also uh, looking for different forces. Um, this was, uh, uh, this was, you know, despite the fact that the German unions with the German Social Democrat were uh, uh, actually doing fairly well, but, uh, you know, that there's considerable forces in among the German Social Democrat that's actually uh, fairly revisionist or anti-revolution. Um, and, you know, this idea of looking for you know, the potential uh, forces that can actually overthrow capitalism, that is a major, I think it's a major threat throughout the writings, the theoretical um, explorations. Um, I think the, the key insight is really that um, if capitalism, if world capitalism has certain structures, has certain hierarchies, and um, you always have a center, you have always have something more of a periphery, um, and it was a historical fact that this, this, uh, the, 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 the countries at the center, uh, you know, the, it, it, those places that they were able to get a lot of surplus from the world um, through all kinds of ways. And it became possible for them to at least, you know, uh, buy a certain portion of the uh, uh, working class in their countries. Um, which was the material basis for class compromise uh, and also revisionism. And if that was a uh, general pattern, then you know, though it, the, the, the potential, the real revolution would have to come from the part that is the way the, the ruling class um, is unable, incapable of buying a significant portion of the working class, which has come from the you know, more peripheral part of the uh, world capitalism. And that search continued. Um, and what we saw in the second international was that, you know, after 1870, the, the new age of, of capitalism has uh, started to emerge <clears throat> major monopoly um, capitalism, um, if the major finance, you know, all those things. And plus with um, a significant push for class compromise social reform, uh, welfare, whatever, in all those major um, uh, now imperialist countries. Um, and, um, um, you know, for, I think that the difference, a large part of the difference within the second international was that, um, um, you know, whether the revolution would come in the East or in the West or in the North or in the South, uh, either way, I mean, it is, it is the, um, um, is the uh, is the working class um, in the more developed part of um, the world capitalism going to um, you know um, be the one that brings about the change? Um, and um, if you think in that way, then you have uh, people like Bernstein and others in the Second International, you know, well acquainted with Marxism, well trained, 
um, <laughs> good uh, theoreticians, but they um, think that you know this is this is actually good. Class compromise is actually good. Um, um, you know, this is actual progress, uh, which is progress. You see a lot of progress under the, the, you know, the, from the effort of social democrats and all the other working class related parties on the continent at least. Um, but at the same time, people like Lenin and others say, so, well, you know, um, this is not, necessar not, not necessarily a revolutionary uh, starting point uh, that, you know, they, the working class might share some interest with the ruling class they might not be so interested in overthrowing capitalism. You know, they, they see something in them in themselves, preserving the status of the world empire, for example. Um, and uh, it was then that uh, uh, Lenin and others they placed their hope on the periphery, <laughs> on the in the Europe, which is the uh, Russian Empire, the more or less you know well, less advanced part of uh, world capitalism at the time. And it was from there they built the revolution. Um, if because if you follow the the you know the crude version of um, this revisionist view, then you know it would become it would make sense, let's say, to expand colonialism because you will bring progress, bring uh, new forces of production to the entire world. Um, that's the crude optimism about capitalism. Um, and then if that is the case, then uh, naturally, politically, you would support everything that your government does because yes, they're you know, very cruel. They kill people there in India, in China, in Africa, in all kinds of places, but at least they, you know, they advanced the forces of production, which, which makes it worthwhile. You know, it's a lesser evil, perhaps. Um, um, but uh, you know, that comes in stark contrast with uh, Lenin and others who support revolution against colonialism. Um, you know, it's not all about which colonialism is good. Maybe the British colonialism is more civilized, let's say, than German colonialism. No, Lenin said it's, you know, we, the, the, the anti-colonialism struggle is a big starting point for revolution. And the real revolution will come from the East or from the South, or not from the, the most developed part of uh, world capitalism. Um, you know, it's the working class, you know, it, it, not just the workers, but other laboring people, they are um, exploited, they're oppressed by their domestic ruling classes, they're also by international, you know, by, by Western uh, powers. Um, they are the most revolutionary in nature, and uh, there is very little hope that they would be actually bought by their ruling classes. You know, those capitalist classes or the ruling classes were simply not powerful enough. They don't have that much money. They can only abs absorb, they only buy a certain amount of working people that most likely in the West, but not entire world. Uh, I think that was uh, uh, a very important um, political struggle discussion happening in the second international. Um, uh, that you know, it, it makes some huge difference between where, what, you know, what's your take on, um, uh, you know, on international relations, or the, uh, how do you view uh, different conflicts uh, between um, the West and the East, or North and South? And obviously, Lenin was um, 
despite you know despite all kinds of um, you know debates and all kinds of exchanges, uh, Lenin and his his group was I think the the minority within the um, um, Second International, and you know the the the, the fact that uh, the major working class parties they all supported most of them supported um, the First World War was a clear proof that they you know it was. They, they don't they don't really care that much about revolution they they want to keep the status quo um, and I, I think that has um, you know uh, uh, a lot of uh, resemblance with um, the discussion we are having mm-hmm. um, you know in recent decades um, um, be, because um, after the second world war uh, it was clear that you know you don't have the the old form of um, imperialism, where you you know you conquer the land and and you know directly oppress the people, set up a, um, a puppet government, etc. But you still have maintained the um, the um, you know the imperialist uh, structure. You still have the labor division um, that's just very strictly you know north versus south, east versus west, um, and you still have. Um, all kinds of, um, I would say, surplus transfer from the more powerful part of the world to the center. Um, and so, yes, and, you know, there is material basis that um, I think uh, for um, working classes uh, in, in the West to align with their own national government uh, in preserving the, uh, this very structure, this very unequal uh, world system. Um, and, and that's, you know, um, interestingly, um, in the last, let's say, in the last 40, um, 30 years, um, you know, after the high wave, high tide of um, uh, world revolution, uh, national liberation, um, you know, that's basically where, where the, the anti-imperialist struggle was, is now actually at a historical low point. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but at the same time, um, you don't talk about imperialism anymore uh, in the in the literature. In many Marxist discussions, people either think that oh that's an old concept. Um, how how what, how can we talk about that right? And that how does that make sense? Or they would try to say well you know it turns out that um, there are so many countries that satisfy the definition of imperialism. The concept doesn't you know it's not relevant anymore. Um, and so, you know, you started to see all kinds of description uh, among the left and well, this is imperialism, that is imperialism, and, you know, you have imperialism, have sub-imperialism, and, you know, have world imperialism, you can have regional imperialism, and once you uh, use the term in such, you know, casual, careless ways, and they lose all the significance and how we scientifically understand what's going on in the world at all. Um, and that was the basic reason I was trying to, um, um, you know, figure out some of the um, uh, underlying assumptions or um, arguments uh, behind all this. Um, this, you know, with people like Robert Brenner and others, um, David Harvey, um, Harton Negri, and all those, um, I think, major figures in, in the Western left, uh, how they have contributed to the, I think, um, um, you know the, the fact that why imperialism has lost its its meaning in Western left and and how does that relate to 
the actual um, you know stage of, of imperialism. So that's how I came to you know write on that. Well, thank you so much for that explanation, and I'd love to immediately go straight to the two that you just pointed out immediately at the beginning of the article, uh, Brenner and Warren. So you, you talk about some of their articles in the New Left Review. Um, you actually call them Euro-Marxists at one point, which I thought was a, a, good, a good label for them. And how they're, they're sort of asserting this, what you call anti-anti-imperialism. So a full pivot back to the counter-revolutionary um, you know, ideology of the Second International, as you point out. And they're writing in the 1980s. So my, my question is, is twofold. First, I'd, I'd like maybe to like go into a little bit if you can explain what they were arguing. Um, and then also to look a little bit at the responses from some notable figures. You talk about Arigi Emanuel's response to Warren, for example. And then I, I'm curious as to, I, you know, I wonder why this response comes at this time. And it, I wonder if you have any potential explanation you're thinking about for why uh, there is this counter-revolutionary turn in the 1980s of, of leftists or Marxists, you know, in, in quotation marks, because I don't think they really qualify uh, in that respect, of turning back to this ideology that doesn't consider imperialism important. And then you really have this from the 80s until quite recently, as you point out, with with Hart and Negri writing Empire in the early 2000s that became super influential on the left and said, basically, there's no such thing as imperialism anymore. Why does this become so popular on the left? And what are some of the responses of, of people like Arigi Emanuel who continue to assert correctly, I think, that imperialism is still a major uh, part of capitalism and has to be analyzed as such? Right, yeah, I, th those are great questions. Um, um, I'm not sure I have the perfect answer to those. <laughs> um, I think that what, what, what we know from, not just on this question, but in general, the US left, the US working class movement um, have been on decline since the 1970s. Um, and all, everything you know, was with that is a long historical trend. Um, and it was just not about imperialism. You know, people say, well, you know, how, why does imperialism even matter? Um, you know, it was, you have, you have, the Vietnam War has ended, right? The anti-war movement, anti-war generation gradually, you know, passed away, um, you know, and you have the new generation of the new left or, you know, other Marxists who uh, uh, did not grow with that kind of sentiment that you, they, you feel the urgency, uh, not just that the, the U.S. is doing something terrible in the world, destroying other people, um, but also the kind of idea that revolution is coming, um, you know, some kind of winter is coming sentiment that, uh, and, and many people at the time thought, well, revolution is going to ha happen maybe uh, around the corner or in a few years, and that, and they saw the revolutionary change uh, primarily through the struggles in the global south. Uh, you have all kinds of great liberation struggles and you have anti-imperialist struggles, wars going on, you know, at the time. So it was, I think it was easy, uh, more straightforward for people to realize that the potential of revolution is there. Um, but, the, you know, 
<laughs> it's a dialectical process. And when, when uh, you realize that uh, revolutions may not come uh, in a few years, and for some people, revolution may not come at all. You know, it's gonna, we're gonna stuck in capitalism forever. This is actually the best among all that we can choose from. Well, then your, your balance, your, your calculation even becomes different. Well, if you have to choose <laughs> between the US capitalism and let's say a third world capitalism, uh, which seemingly offers lower wages, lower benefits, I guess, lower level of human rights, would they say, well, well, I would rather stuck with US capitalism, then there's no alternative, right? Um, alternative, the alternative is us. I mean, we should offer the US capitalism to them. Well, again, we go back to a second international that we, we, we need to expand our civilization so they can be civilized first. Forget about revolution. There's no hope in their revolution. And which was, you know, <laughs> we know that after the liberation struggles, um, many of those countries, they face their own problems. Uh, the new government, national governments, the new movement, they run into all kinds of contradictions, uh, which was not easily resolved by, by themselves. Um, you have the dramatic changes in the Soviet Union um, that the leadership you know, started to say, well, actually what we did then was largely wrong and we, we apologize for all those. And you have the Chinese leadership saying, well, actually we also made some huge mistakes. And you know, here we, we're gonna converge to some kind of new model, which is basically market economy. And then really you have that uh, no alternative uh, point. Um, and the, the capital plus uh, in general, in the whole world, they're gaining strength. They're, they're, they're on the rise again. Um, I think in such a, you know, this, this counter-revolutionary uh, period, it becomes, it becomes normal, I would say natural for people to, to rethink that, oh, we were so naive, you know, 10 years ago, or uh, just, that was too far. Uh, it was just, you know, um, and you, you see that many former leftists, you know, they, 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 they re, re, you know, they reconceived their idea. They, they became <laughs> right, right-wing people, alt-right, you know, all kinds of crazy guys. Um, so y y there, there was a common pattern and within the, um, let's say within academia <laughs> with, um, scholars that had interest in Marx or Marxian thoughts, you also see significant changes. Uh, you know, the people that say, well, you know, we, now we take this turn, that turn, and that turn to, to you know, turn away from the, uh, the let's say more, uh, they, they like to say the dogmatic Marxism, and you're gonna do something more flexible, more fun, post-Marx or whatever. But it's, in, 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 no matter what the term is, it, it, was a, it was all kinds of attempts to move away from Marxism, from revolution, from the belief that there is actually another world possible. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna get rid of capitalism, not just in the US, but in the entire world. And most likely the revolution is gonna happen in the periphery. And that belief, that whole framework, it was, was overthrown, was, was abandoned. And then you, you started, you know, the, 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 all the rationale uh, for preserving status quo became logical. Um, and um, um, like you feel, well, Warren was a more like a precursor. He, he really wrote uh, uh, when the anti-imperialist struggle was still um, at its peak. 
and so, but but you know, you already see signs like that. And Warren argued, well, actually, imperialism or colonialism is something like that actually brought progress. Um, you know, um, the uh, the whatever system, uh, capitalist system, uh, was not prohibiting, uh, let's say, autonomous development and growth in the third world. They're actually doing well. <laughs> That's Warren's argument. They're doing well based on um, this hard statistical <laughs> data. That they're doing fine. And you know, if this trend continues, um, then you know we wouldn't have to worry about those um, uh, the structures of imperialism, uh, hierarchies, or you know, inequality between north and south. No, no. You know, capitalism can do those. Um, maybe in the future we're gonna like abandon, you know, get rid of capitalism, you know, altogether. But the argument that in there is this limit in capitalism to absorb uh, the entire world population. There is this limit in capitalism that, you know, a big part of the world population cannot, can never reach the level of, let's say, um, development that we see in the center. That, uh, Warren and, and his, his, you know, his, his colleagues are basically, well, that's not true. You know, we can do it. Yes, we can. Um, and that was, uh, you know, it was that was a rare optimism that we saw in the uh, during the anti-war movement, and you know, it was interesting. It was published in the New Left Review um, at such time, and um, and the the interesting fact that you know, in in a lot of historical times, it's not it doesn't really matter what, whether you what you wrote is accurate. Um, you know, you can make all kinds of empirical uh, um, arguments which are not entirely accurate, not entirely reliable, uh, um, but it somehow it fits. I think it fitted the, the, the trend. And people thought, wow, that makes so much sense. Um, so you have, you know, very good critique um, uh, response from the people that you, you mentioned, also in the New Life Review and other places. But they don't have them as much influence or impact as Warren's article or Warren's other writings. People say, wow, this is really, really fascinating, persuasive. Um, and then you have, you know, have Brenner as like a historian that writes some all these kind of things. And he was, he, I think he went beyond Warren's argument that, you know, it's not just, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, imperialism would, would, it's okay for, for all the global South to develop even under capitalism or imperialism. Um, and what, uh, 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 Brenner's argument was more fundamentally at the very development of capitalism itself um, and where he, you know, he had its main uh, target uh, opponents as uh, Sweezy and also Wollaston, you know, and, um, and that group, um, and um, that's you know that's that's why he brought back the long, you know the the, the, the debate the, the, about transition from feudalism to capitalism. Why does it matter? Uh, why it, why does it show actually Sweezy and all the others were wrong about capitalism? Um, and you know so so it, 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 you know it's it's I think it was um, again. It's not just a matter whether Brenner was um, 
so persuasive, was so correct, and so good in his in his arguments. I mean, Brenner was not. I mean, he was a historian, obviously, but he he he. I don't think he was. Uh, he was mostly, you know, like doing a detailed review, uh, making some, um, um, uh, uh, you know, basically some some. I would say some critical review of the literature. I mean, he was not doing primary researching in a major way on, on that uh, transition period. Um, and, um, the, and there were responses, there were critiques about uh, Brenner's thesis. Um, um, uh, that basically the thesis was that um, the rise of capitalism in England was mostly because of internal reasons, was not because of external relations. Well, in other words, you know, the, why, the reason why England and or others, uh, they got first, they, they, they could become rich, they, they became the center of the world, was just because of it, they, there were some English factors, uh, not because as other people would tend to think that, well, there is a colonial relationship, there is all the expansion, oversea conquer, and all those um, uh, world trade or economic relations. No, I mean, to, to, to Brenner, those are, those are um, not that significant. He was mostly just internal. And um, the, the way he made his argument was uh, a typical, I would say a typical uh, way uh, that scholars wrote in an analytical uh, fashion that, you know, well, there's no, Brenner said there's no transition um, because, uh, you know, um, <laughs> because it's, you, you, the, the, you know, a thing can only have either it's feudal or capitalism. Um, um, you cannot have something like muddy, like in between, like a, some kind of a transition. That, that itself is not allowed in his thinking. That, well, how can you have this? I mean, a man's uh, thinking, a man's rationale, this either he pursues 100% maximum profit or he just wants to do something else. You cannot have someone that well still uh, do as a feudal lord and, and but gradually started to pursue profit and you know um, um, uh, you know towards markets etc. That's not allowed. And so by definition, he just eliminates the entire transition process. But it doesn't matter whether you know he was correct or or not. I mean, as, as I summarize, there are many very good critiques and he was wrong in logic and he was also wrong in many core uh, key empirical facts. But the funny thing is that he didn't, didn't really meet a lot of criticism at all. You know, ever since he published this long piece in New Level Review, it quickly became, wow, like, well, this makes so much sense. It's not, it's not just, it makes so much sense. It just fits, I think it fitted the historical trend. Everybody thought, wow, this is, this solved all our troubles. Like those mental burden, the psychological trauma that we had with from the, from the, the mistakes of the revolution, all the, all the, all the problems that we, we saw that we, we lost hope. And this is our hope. <laughs> I, I think there is something like that. Um, and uh, so it, you know, the Brenner's intervention obviously received. Um, I think uh, um, a recognition, the influence that's larger than what the, the article was actually trying to, to say. Um, and it really signified the, uh, the retreat of uh, imperialism studies or 
discussion from the entire Western left, uh, um, you know, uh, literature. Um, so, so yeah, I think it was, you know, and Brenner was not the only one, right? There were people writing in different sub section of Marxism and related to Marxism, and they wrote about very similar things. Oh, well, you need to make this transition, that transition, um, you know, or well, we believe Marxism was not. Um, scientific enough. We need to make it make it scientific. We need to make maybe based on individual um, uh, individualist thinking or some kind of uh, you know more make it you know make Marxism make sense <laughs> um, things like that. Um, and it was again everything was in that moment when Marxism revolution everything was in retreat. Um, capitalism was gaining power. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and you see that first with the discussion of imperialism. Right. And I think, I think, you know, what you're saying is really fascinating with respect to the actual decay of the Western working class, which has been commented on quite frequently. And with respect to uh, the labor aristocracy, unequal exchange, and how it relates to the theorists of uh, that working class. And, and that's something that plenty of critics of the Second International, like Walter Rodney, actually said a very similar thing and said the Second International was the representative for the labor aristocracy uh, of the Western working class. I, I guess my last thing would be asking you, you know, what impact have these theories had on the left uh, promoting this anti-anti-imperialism? So I mentioned briefly, Hart and Negri have become quite popular amongst a certain trend of the left, but you also talk in your article about David Harvey, who's you know, very popular and actually someone that a lot of young leftists encounter pretty early uh, when, they're, when they're learning, but his you know, writing on imperialism is very, very um, underdeveloped, if, if you wanna put it that way. Um, and I wonder theoretically how, how this sets people back um, for comprehending imperialism properly for also, something that I think is pretty important that, that you talk about, which is actually creating a, a revolutionary politics that, as you were mentioning, is centered on the South, centered on the East, that can take us back to something like, like Lenin and Mao, which you point out consistently, were the theorists that placed imperialism at the center of their analysis. So how has this analysis and this return of this ideology hindered a lot of progress uh, of, of the left in the West in particular? Is that is it possible to redeem that? Or do you think that the Western left in a lot of ways has betrayed uh, really like a revolutionary orientation since turning its back on anti-imperialism? Or do you think it's possible to have this re a return to this analysis of imperialism of Lenin and Mao that can bring us back to a revolutionary engagement with the South and the East? Well, thanks uh, again. That's a really, really great question. Um, I, 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 well, you know, if we want to make a prediction, um, uh, probably we can look at, again, the 20th century. Um, the Second International was the mainstream, you know, that's the, the pro-imperialist uh, forces were, was the, the mainstream at the time among the Western left. Um, but even so, I think after the success of uh, Soviet Russia, and then Soviet Union, and then you know the revolutions in, in China, Vietnam, and the entire Third World, 
uh, that became a major wave of um, revolutionary politics and also uh, intellectual um, activities in, in, in this country and in the West in general. I mean, if you look at the, the interwar period, um, up until, let's say, I mean, um, well, for example, I mean, in this country, <laughs> I'm on the board of uh, uh, Science and Society, which is uh, one of the longest uh, Marxism journal in, in the English world, uh, or in the, in the entire world, I think. Um, and it was established in 1936. Um, and before that, there was no Marxism journal in this country or in Britain. Um, and and I, after, after the establishment of the journal, it, it you know, it, wasn't, you know, uh, there was uh, all kinds of uh, surveillance, suppression of the journal, but it, it still, it, I think you reached a, um, a good amount of circulation uh, in the 1960s when the, when the overall, uh, you know, uh, world revolution and uh, the struggle uh, reached a high point. Uh, I, th I think, you know, if there is a major um, revolutionary tide in the world, uh, I would say it pr probably would most likely start from somewhere in the east, in the south. But once it reached a particular momentum, that would have a big impact on, on people's minds here in the west. Um, I, I've met so many um, great uh, um, intellectuals uh, in this country and other places that are, I think they're genuinely um, exploring different ideas, different, different things, different possibilities for, for struggles. Um, um, but the thing is that if you don't actually have a viable struggle going on, um, if we just talk verbally in words, well, I think this is good and that is good. I mean, this is better. There you, you, there's no way you can persuade people. It, it takes revolutionary actions, struggles to actually persuade people that, well, that's actually you know, a possible way to, to go. So I think that once you see a real uh, um, comeback of revolutionary movement in the world, um, I, I think it would be much, much easier for um, the people in the Western left um, to, to, you know, to, to sort this through. Know, well, this is actually a good way to go. Um, but before that, um, I, I think it's it's hard to um, to win, let's say, the majority of the Western left. Um, you're gonna have severe divisions, so as we see right now. You have you know um, some very you know clear differences and and, and conflicts among different different uh, groups. Um, and um, I, I think the, the best thing that um, uh, the Western left can, can do is at least to reflect on the, um, um, on the imperialist um, 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 actions that, that their own national governments do and try to push for anti-imperialist, uh, um, you know, at least uh, um, uh, struggles. Um, some kind of um, some kind of movement that that at least stops what or try to stop the the, uh, the West um, um, from 
inflicting more harm to the global south. And that is something that's definitely doable. Um, even if, you know, with the people don't have necessarily agree with everything, like, oh, we, you know, where the revolution will come and et cetera. But at least, you know, stop selling weapons to all kinds of part of the world or, you know, stop uh, um, doing all kinds of uh, color revolution, regime change and et cetera. I mean, that's, that's uh, I think, a, um, I, I think fairly reasonable <laughs> for, for, for people to, to work on. Um, and it would be best if um, the Western left would be as is cautious about um, the, the mainstream um, uh, media, the propaganda from basically from their own national governments. Um, when people read New York Times, Washington Post, you know, it, it, be extra careful about what they, what they say and, you know, um, um, keep some politics in the mind <laughs> that, it, you know, this is, this is not a uh, working class newspaper. It, it really has its own bourgeois agenda. And I think that would be, you know, something we can, we can work on, we can hope for at this period. But before a major uh, movement uh, um, comes into place, uh, it, it's not going, to, I, I don't think it's gonna be easy to, uh, to, to redeem <laughs> the anti-imperialist struggles in, in this country or in the West in general, um, like not on a large scale. Well, thank you so much um, for speaking with me. And, and your article is really incredible. It's one of the, the best summaries of, of this problem that I've seen. And for us in our group, you know, we're, we're especially interested in studying imperialism. And, and above that, as most of us are students, but we're most interested in approaching a lot of these questions and trying to get students more interested in anti-imperialism and trying to take them away from, as you, as you were pointing out, uh, a Marxist orientation that totally ignores imperialism or in some cases like apologizes for it. So your article is a really great explanation of the problem at hand and, and how to, the necessity of, of fighting it. Um, so I really appreciate speaking to you. I, I would love to stay in touch as well because I think your, your writing on this subject is very powerful. So yeah, I really appreciate it. That's very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Um, take care. Take care, bye. bye.